This episode of the Coin World Podcast is brought to you by Amos Advantage and the Coin World Premier Slab Coin Holders. Keep your coins protected with the Coin World Premier Slab Coin Holders. These holders seal tightly to ensure the look and feel of a slab without the expense. With the versatile Premier Coin Holders, you can mix and match your slabbed and unslabbed coins. These are sold in packages of three and are available in 40 different sizes. Check out the Coin World Premier Slab Coin Holders and all the other coin collecting accessories at AmosAdvantage.com. Now sit back and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Coin World Podcast. Here are your hosts, Chris Bullfinch and Jeff Stark. Welcome to the Coin World Podcast. I'm Chris Wolfinch. And I'm Jeff Stark. We have a great show for you this week. We have a wonderful discussion or interview with John Kralovich, who operates JK Americana and is known for his voluminous research into early American coinage and related items and the auction catalogs that come from that. We're going to talk a lot about history and early Americana this week. And if you enjoy our discussions, remember not only to keep on listening every week, but to subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcasts. And feel free to reach out to us with questions, comments, feedback, anecdotes, anything. Feel absolutely free, but remember, keep on listening. And if you enjoy it, subscribe. Absolutely. And this is where I disclose something that you didn't know about me, maybe. Mm. Oh, you yeah? kind of know it, Chris. I, I, I might know about this. But I love... Jeff's, Jeff's bearing his soul here. I love heavy metal. I'm not talking about the hairband stuff, the you know the the rock corn and some of those. Yeah, you know, I don't know all the bands. I don't, I don't know the corn qualifies as hair metal. But well, would, 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 well, but that, we, that, we that's heavy call, metal, right? We, well, corn. Yeah, yeah, corn is heavy metal. Yes, the, yes. Hair metal is so a, I don't. It's a thing from the 80s. We'd have to call Paul in here to get him to parse it. Yeah, okay. It, but maybe, anyway. maybe, maybe yeah, another okay, time. So, so yes. I love heavy metal. You but love I'm heavy metal. not talking about the musical. Not talking about the music. Okay. I love medals. M e d a l s. We've talked about medals mm-hmm. before. Usually, we talk more about coins and paper money, though. But sometimes we we talk about metals and tokens. That's related to numismatics. There's another term for that. There what, is. What what have we been talking about all this time? There Chris? is indeed another term. So for for our term of the week, we're going to be talking about exonumia or exonumists. And so as Jeff alluded to, metals are just as collectible as coins are. In fact, there are some people who specialize specifically in metals. And And there are some metals that are far rarer than coins, but far more affordable. And that's actually one of the big draws of metal collecting as a hobby as opposed to coin collecting, is that in a lot of cases you can get things that go for a fraction of the cost of coins that are often, as Jeff alludes to, quite a bit more rare or have lower mintages, or in some cases are just aesthetically beautiful. Amazing designs or a great uh, great story, great history behind it. So the term exonumia, now if if you actually break down the term, exo outside of and numia numismatics and numia is, is a shortened version of that exonumia actually means outside of numismatics now technically i guess that could allude to anything that's outside of numismatics but it's an acknowledgement of the fact that metals are not technically coins and the differentiation is that coins are used as a mechanism of exchange whereas metals strictly speaking do not have any exchange value collectible metals are sold so they have an exchange value in that sense but as they were issued their purpose of issuance was not to facilitate exchange. 
Yes, and tokens, while they have a face value and were used and can be used as a medium of exchange, those are not issued by a federal or national authority, so those are not coins either. Right. And so, they thus qualify in the category of exonumia. Right. And so exonumia simply refers to the study and collecting of metals. And someone who is an expert or a... And tokens. A, and to, yes. Tokens and metals, that falls under the umbrella of exonumia. An exonumist, someone who is an expert on metals, tokens, or both, is an exonumist. In the same way that numismatics refers to the discipline and study of coins and coin collecting, and a numismatist is someone who is an expert on coins or collects coins. Exonumia is the discipline, and exonumist is someone who operates in the discipline. The adherent, if the you ad- <laughs> Yeah, and that makes it sound like a cult. Well, um, <laughs> well I, you know... I, <laughs> in so many ways it is. I, I, I am a proud member. Uh, <laughs> uh, right. So one of the things that we got to discuss with Mr. Kralovich was the history of what coins circulated in the early American time. And that's certainly an area that in which he specializes. So that ties in well with what was going on this week in history. Yes, for, for it was on November 29th, 1792, when Congress ordered the assay of foreign coins in circulation in the United States. Now, an assay, what is that? Assay, assay, that's like something that a cartoon character says. No, assay is actually when you are checking the metal content of a given item to determine how pure it is. It's purity, often described as fineness. So the idea was there's all these world coins that are circulating in the United States, the the young republic, because at that time there wasn't a federal coinage, 1792. You had the colonial stuff, all that going out. These world coins could be debased. They could be of lower fineness. There were all sorts of charts that were published so you could figure out the value of one type of money, national coinage, versus another. So Congress said, we're going to mandate that these are assayed so we can determine how good they are, how valuable they are. So that was what was going on in 1792. A little more recently, though, you found something interesting, Chris. So... In the same way that we've uh, that we take the occasion of uh, of whatever day of the month or week that we record this in to talk about a an episode from history, we've been having some fun digging into old issues of Coin World, and the issue from November twenty sixth, two thousand and seven, certainly was a, a fascinating issue, and we found a couple of interesting headlines and a couple of interesting letters to the editor that we thought uh, were worth sharing with you. Now, two thousand and seven, as most people who are listening remember was immediately before the recession, and the above-the-fold headline read, Not quite a rerun of 1979. Gold market active, but not frenzied. It referred to the spike in metal value, in this case specifically precious metals value, specifically in this case relating to gold, that occurred right around the time that the housing bubble started to pop. There were sort of tremors in the U.S. economy. Gold prices started to increase 
pretty rapidly. And in fact, they would plateau. Gold would break $2,000 an ounce just a year or two after this came out. Gold broke $2,000 an ounce in what, 2008, 2009? That sounds right. I I, I can't afford gold, so I don't. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. No, yeah. Jeff and I definitely don't keep a very close track of gold prices. I I can afford fool's gold. (laughs) Sort of. Almost. (laughs) Exactly. I don't know. What what does pyrite go for an ounce? I have no idea. (laughs) 33 Um, cents anyway. (laughs) Something like, yeah. You can buy it any gem and mineral shop for a couple bucks so anyway so uh it seems like the uh, the upturn in metal price was something that people were thinking about in 2007 as well as our colleague paul jilks in the other cover story of november 26th 2007 our colleague paul jilks wrote that the fed was able that year to meet the nation's coinage needs so there were enough coins in 2007 and apparently not quite enough gold to go around yeah, and part of the reason, looking back with hindsight, I can see that headline, and the subhead says, official claims no cent surplus exist, but the main head, of course, the Fed's able to meet nation's coinage supply. In 2008, 2009, 2010, because of the tough economy, a lot of coins came out of hiding, and there wasn't a demand for new coins in circulation, yeah. so mintage figures yep. plummeted right around then, and so obviously the early signs of that were visible in this issue from November 26, 2007. As always, there's something illustrative in the letters to the editor page. It speaks to this um, common theme, this commonality that the more things change, the more they stay the same. Some of the sort of issues of the day of today and 10 years ago and 50 years ago are the same. It's as if we're looking through a mirror at a mirror. What did you find? So... A man named Daniel Sheffer, who ran Daniel's Coins and Currency LLC in Shelby Township, Michigan, which may or may not exist today, hopefully it does, wrote that uh, apparently in, uh, in recent issues of Coin World, there have, quote, there have been some letters to the editor lately from collectors who are not treated fairly by dealers at shows or on eBay. Don't give up! Exclamation point. I am a collector and a dealer. I will teach anyone that comes to my table or to my office or who emails me. I also teach coin collecting classes. I've been in the hobby for 10 years and a dealer for one year, and I have higher sales than most dealers at small shows. Why? Fair prices and lots of information and advice. So let me say again, do not give up. Numismatics is the best hobby on earth, and there are many good dealers willing to help. And he repeats our our little podcast catchphrase, happy collecting. Well, to be fair, I have been saying that for a long time before the podcast. Well, did, did it predate 2007? Uh, I don't know. Probably oh, not, go. but I, well, I don't recall ever reading this letter. Well, it's, there's, there's hardly a trademark on it, so I don't think anyone sure. can realistically claim it as theirs. But this idea that folks have an encounter with the hobby that might not be positive, certainly in yep. the beginning stages, is a refrain we hear again and again even today, but it was echoed on the same page of that issue where a yep. Paul Vastorelli of East Haven, Connecticut, mentions that it's a sad day when a chairman of a numismatic organization has the nerve to tell the world that he and the rest of the coin community don't need collectors who are just trying to enjoy the hobby. Now... Apparently there was something of a kerfuffle at a Cincinnati area coin show in which someone wrote a rather insensitive letter to the editor in a previous uh, 2007 Coin World issue, just to yes. provide a little backdrop. Yes, and so uh, Mr. Vastorelli mentions that there are two kinds of collectors. The first kind is a collector that does it for fun of the hobby. The second kind is those that person who's engaged in only for investment and profit. 
The coin hobby, I'm sad to say, has turned into nothing more than an industry to make money. I don't blame smaller dealers. Why should they talk to us, the small-time collectors, when they have large corporations buying the entire lot of coins they are selling? Vastarelli continues, but everyone should remember that without the collector, the larger corporations will have no one to sell to, and if that happens, then the smaller dealers will not be able to sell to the big guys. He goes on later to say, as with any product, enough bad press will eventually affect the bottom line. Dinosaurs were around for a long time, too, and now look at them. So in closing, I say, get ready for extinction. Wow, that's a, citing the dinosaurs is a hell of a precedent. That implies that there's a meteor coming for the hobby. Uh, well, uh, you know. I mean, what, I, I, understand, I understand the analogy. I'm just and, saying and, it's, and again, in, it's, and it's a rather intense way of phrasing it. Looking back in hindsight, though, you know, because I was on CoinWorld staff then. I yeah. I was uh, I came here you in were, 2004. Yeah, for I was going to say, yeah, you were, what, three years in at that point? Yeah, yeah. And um, three and a half. And uh, there are a lot of smaller dealers who haven't made it or they're still around, but they've changed their business model. They're doing lots of stuff online. They're not advertising in coin world. They're reaching an audience in different arenas. So there are some who've gone extinct. There are some who've retired, but as with everything, it's always, the landscape is always changing. I'm sympathetic to the argument that Every dealer and every every coin journalist, every and in some sense every coin collector, though I think that the dealers and the other professionals in the hobby might have a little more influence in this regard, I do think that all the people I've just named to some extent have to function as ambassadors of the hobby. And especially in an age where technology is making it easier and easier to collect in your pajamas, there's that sort of famous Trumpian line about a, about a guy disrupting the election sitting in his underwear or something right at the computer yeah and so it, it seems like in an age where it's easy to just collect online without actually encountering the more human element of the hobby i think that it, it is easy for people to become a little bit disillusioned especially if a sort of early formative coin collecting experience is negative and so i think that especially having having the argument this is something that i found really interesting about the letters we just read Having this kind of a debate in such a public way, I mean, the, these guys aren't sending nasty emails to each other. They're they're duking it out on the on the editorial pages of Coin World. I mean, that's if if you want to air dirty laundry, that's a relatively large platform on which to do it. And we still accept letters to this day. So yeah, that we do. We want to be a reflection and a place for the discussion and the hobby, both you know on the pages of Coin World, also here in in our little podcast world. So uh, right, no, no, and and the, but out of all places, that is a good place to have the great debate. So on that's on that note, if you do want to uh, send us messages and tell us what you think, we are always uh, happy to hear it and. We'll, uh, you know, if you send us interesting questions or something, you might even end up on the pod. I have a question for you, Chris. Hit me with it. What sort of numismatic history is related to your forebears? To my forebears. That brings us to our series of the week. And in honor of John Kralovich and our discussion of exonumia earlier in the pod, I decided to pick out an early American medal. And I picked out the 1787 Columbia and Washington medal. A fair amount has been written on this. I personally consulted a couple of articles from Coin World and the Massachusetts Historical Society's website. Did you know of the connection before doing this research? Yes, I did. Okay. Because, okay. well, so I actually... So this was a loaded so the, question, the metal, if you will. <laughs> right. The metal had been on my radar around the time I started here, I think. I was... Okay. Or, actually, no. You know what? No. The first time I found out about it was during my, um, my honors thesis in college. I, uh, I attended Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut. Go Bantams. 
uh, for any Trinity people listening, they're the only ones who are going to get that. And I uh, major in history, and to, uh, to get honors on your degree, uh, you have to write an honors thesis. You have to have a certain GPA, and you have to uh, spend a year writing a long-form research piece about, that sounds uh, about torturous. a topic. Yeah, uh, well, my thesis advisor ever ends up listening to this, I genuinely apologize. But um, so anyway, and so uh, I was using some primary source documents from an ancestor of mine, uh, Charles Bullfinch, the architect, to help me write my, my thesis. And I found in one of the articles that I read an allusion to this medal that had been issued in 1787 in honor of the first American circumnavigation of the world. So that brings us into the Washington and Columbia Medal. So shortly after independence and after the conclusion of the Revolutionary War, America, wanting to sort of flex its power and show that it can participate in wonderful feats of scientific um, discovery scientific and, exploration. And, and, and exploration and navigation, they decided that they wanted to commission a circumnavigation of the world. That's what happens. That's something that happens to little boys right when they're born, right? Oh, Jesus. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, good God. Um Here's Jeff alluding to a bris. Um, <laughs> I'm sure Brian's going to cut that. Oh, no. That would be no fun if he did that. <laughs> anyway. I would actually love – you know what I'd love to do? Brian, you can feel free to leave this in or take it out. I actually would love to have Brian on the podcast. That I, is great. No. because Okay. So just as a quick aside, listeners, just – if you'll indulge us for a minute – we have very little audio editing experience, Jeff and I. Um, we actually do. We both have, do have. <laughs> we a, barely have talking experience. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, exactly. We actually do both have. You have a little bit of broadcast experience, right? Yes, I've, yes. I do too. From I was college. on. Yeah, me too. I was on my college radio station, and but you know we have broadcasting experience, but not a lot of audio editing experience. So one of the guys on the tech staff here at Amos Media. Uh, Brian Hertel, he edits all of these podcasts together. In fact, and listens to our insufferable jokes. Oh and God, yeah, he, the amount of stuff he ha- the amount of stuff he has to edit is truly, it's truly terrible. I do feel for him the amount of work that we give him. We're but getting better every week. He but. Uh, he is um he's he's a wonderful guy and a very talented uh, audio editor, and we we couldn't do it without him. So I'd like to take this time for us to note our our appreciation. And yeah, he's he's the third member of the show. Yeah, he he really is. So in whatever comments you post on the internet about this, you know, sh- show him some love. He's or Blame him either way. No, but I, <laughs> no blame I, us. Yeah, I, if anyone bl- deserves blame for this, it's definitely us. Me. So no, no, it's 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 if if there's blame to be shared, you and I share it equally. So so anyway, so in 1787 they commissioned circumnavigation of the globe, and the two ships, the Columbia and the Lady Washington, were eventually selected, and they set out on October 1st, 1787, and to commemorate their leaving, a medal was minted. Now. The benefactors of the expedition, what became known as the Columbia Expedition, included a number of prominent Bostonians, one of whom, C. Bullfinch, Charles Bullfinch, is my great-great-great-great-grandfather. And he put up some of the money, and it was thought that he actually designed the medal. What's really interesting is, according to the Massachusetts Historical Society, there's actually not a lot of evidence about who the designer and die sinker were who produced this medal. In uh, newspapers, which normally reported on new coin or medal designs, actually there aren't really any references to who designed and minted this thing. But the Massachusetts Historical Society has some theories. They think that either Charles Bullfinch or Joseph Beryl, who was another person involved in the process, might have designed it, and that Joseph Callender, a name that some of you very astute listeners might remember from our conversation about the 1787 and 1788 Massachusetts copper half-cents and cents. Joseph Callender? Is his wife Marie? (laughs) 
that's spectacular. I love that. Um, so <laughs> I think that came later. I think that's a different. Okay, okay. I think that's a different person. So, but Joseph Callender was a prominent die sinker in Boston, and he is thought to be the person who executed the dies for this medal. Now, the Columbia Exhibition took about two and a half-ish years to circumnavigate the globe. They came back in 1790. The medal was produced in three different metals. The medal was produced in metals. It was produced in copper, pewter, and silver. And a copper example of the medal was actually presented to the Massachusetts Historical Society when it was founded in 1791. So I have a tiny little connection to the history of U.S. exonumia. So now that we've explored that trivial bullfinch, <laughs> let's, let's look at our trivia question from yep. last week. Yes. Yeah, we got to answer this. And this was a callback to an earlier episode, although this was a real tough one. Expert level question. The question is who bought the original Confederate half dollar discovery piece in the 1880s? So we've talked about the Confederate coinage, which is very limited, especially in comparison to the Confederate paper money. But there was a half dollar discovered in the 1880s. Who discovered it? That's what we're trying to find out. Do you have any idea, Chris? I think uh, there isn't there a isn't there a popular cracker that's named after a, a salt saltine um, salt uh, oyster cracker saltines. I'm not sure. Uh, well, the, or you could say that this is a reference to a TV show, Sanford and Sons. Oh wow, that's going back. The uh, the gentleman who was the discoverer. Is J. Sanford Saltus. Now, that's a name. Saltus, not saltine. Yes, Saltus. Sanford Saltus is a name that is remembered today for his contributions to American medallic artistry. The American Numismatic Society bestows a J. Sanford Saltus Award. Saltus, interestingly, died at his own hands accidentally when he was cleaning coins. He was using a toxic, a noxious potion, poison, to clean his coins. (laughs) A noxious potion, I love that. He grabbed a drink of ginger ale and set it near the noxious potion and accidentally picked up the potion when he meant to get a drink. Instead, he took the poison and died. It was an ignominious way to die for such a scholar. Yeah, no, no kidding. But that is apparently, according to the Coin World Trivia question, he was the one who discovered the Confederate half dollar in the 1880s. So right. we've had the answer for that one. So now it's time let's to hear. ask yep. another one. Yep, let's hear it. And this relates to, again, it's a callback to an earlier episode. It's also early American minting history, which dovetails nicely with our discussion coming up momentarily with John Kralovich. The trivia question now is, where were Nova Constellatio, or Nova, Con- Nova Constellatio, coppers struck? Where were they struck? You may have heard. Remembered that from a past episode. We talked about these pieces that circulated way Indeed. back when. We, we have talked about them, but either don't go back and spoil the episode for yourself or go back and spoil it and learn a little bit. But, you know, feel free to reach out to us and let us know where you think they were minted. Yeah, we're, we'll, we'll have this posted on Facebook, and if we get somebody commenting, we'll get it out there. While you're waiting with bated breath, I'm sure, to hear about the minting location of Nova Constellatio Coppers, enjoy your interview with John Kralovich. It was a fun conversation. 
about some of the more interesting and obscure things he's worked on. We are delighted to be joined today by John Kralovich, who operates JK Americana, is a name well-known to the numismatic hobby for the last 30-plus years, maybe even 40 years almost. Thanks for being here, John. Sure, yeah, thanks for having me. So let's talk about your career in the hobby, how you got started, and the fun stuff that you really get to explore that's outside of the normal, the usual numismatic byways of Lincoln Sense and VAM uh, varieties and that sort of thing. What institutions and experiences were central to your development as a numismatist, a researcher, and historian? When I started as a kid, it didn't take me very long to realize that putting together a collection of wheat cents or, or do that sort of thing wouldn't hold my interest very long. Uh, although, like everybody else, I certainly started that way. But having a, a pretty significant interest in early American history, I quickly developed a certain taste for uh, what we call colonial coins, early American coins. And that's the thing that kind of went along with colonial coins. So even more than your Red Book listed types of New Jersey coppers and Connecticut coppers and things of that nature, I quickly discerned that there was not only great research opportunities and great value, but a lot left to learn about early American metals and tokens and colonial currency, and then even the, the more oddball stuff connected to it, whether it be wampum or early American trade goods that were traded to Native Americans, or uh, you know, counter-stamped coins, or, you know, the, the further out, the better. Uh, I started attending ANA summer seminars as a very young man, got involved in, in numismatic auction cataloging while I was still a high school kid. Uh, and once you get into, into auction cataloging and you get the reputation as the guy who likes the weird stuff, basically all the weird stuff ends up on your desk because, you know, auction houses are obviously uh, sort of great vacuum cleaners of numismatic material. And typically, you know, there's enough people that, that know about the standard things and there's a few specialists who might, you know, prefer world coins or paper money or whatever. But then there's all the rest of the stuff. And I became the guy that got to know about all the rest of the stuff. And I certainly didn't know it all originally, but seeing that much material over the last, you know, couple of decades, I've gotten to learn a lot about it and I've developed, a, you know, a heck of a library and a lot of people have helped me out and given me guidance and, and here we are today. So you mentioned your auction catalogs and it seems like one of the most significant public contributions you've made to the hobby are the auction catalogs that you've put together and they're often cited as reference works. So they're obviously fairly exhaustive in terms of the research that goes into them. Is there a method to producing a good auction catalog? And what distinguishes yeah. <laughs> a truly good auction catalog from a simple sort of recitation or reproduction of basic details about the material in an auction? Sleep as little as possible for as many months as your wife will let you. That's the, uh, that's the recipe for making a good auction catalog. Um, it, you know, Generally, when the, the auction catalogs that I've been able to produce that have kind of become reference works started with a collector, and they started with someone who put together a smart, specialized collection. So their contribution is paramount, whether it be the collection of, you know, Lucy Mervier and his Betts medals, or Mrs. Norweb and her Washingtoniana, or the Pogue family and their early American coins. They all started with someone who, who basically knew what they were doing and put together a group of material worth interpreting. You know, you can't make a reference work out of, uh, say, full of odd lots or, you know, just a, a random assortment of 90% silver. It just doesn't lend itself to that. So, so it starts with someone who had a pretty good idea of assembling a collection that was meant to be a reference collection and then creating the reference work to make their work manifest as an information resource. And, and once you've actually got the stuff, once you've got a, a cabinet or a collection or, you know, a, a whatever kind of numismatic amalgamation you've got, 
uh, you know, my method is generally to spend as much time with the material before I start writing as I possibly can, just to kind of wrap my head around it and get that headspace. I tend to spend weeks or months around the time of that writing reading uh, associated history. So not so much coin books, but kind of to get the, the flavor of the, the time era, of the, you know, cultural elements that produce these sorts of things, and basically to kind of, you know, create a language to describe these kinds of items that might be more the language of a historian than, a, than an anesthetist. Uh, it's, you know, it's pretty easy to give the grade and, you know, say what these things look like, and they're this many millimeters and they weigh this many grains and all that kind of thing. But in a general way, those don't really add much to our knowledge. Uh, and after I kind of start with that basic historical understanding, then I really get into the numismatic resources. I, I kind of uh, go into what historians call historiography, which is to say discovering what every previous numismatic writer has said about these things, thereby being able to separate facts and fiction to see what stories maybe don't hold water or don't have good evidence behind them to try to uh, take the rumors and sort them out and get the facts straight and squared away and backed up with good solid evidence. And then figure out what people haven't figured out yet and to see if the group of objects that you have in front of you maybe help fill in some of those blanks. Uh, and then once that's done, you, you get in your writing. And, you know, many times I, I look at an object and I think, what's the story this object's trying to tell me? Is it a story about when it was created? You know, in the case of, a say, a rare early American medal, is it the story of the person that the medal honors? Is it, is it the story of the engraver? Is it just the story of a a famous collector who once owned it, what's the best narrative hook to make this more than a collectible, more than an object that fills a hole on someone's want list, and more of an avatar to something that happened in the past, whether it be something that happened around the time of this piece's creation or something that happened during its life as a collectible. And different pieces end up with different narratives. And, you know, over the course of 20 or 30 years when you're cataloging the same kind of rarity several times. Sometimes you tell the story of it as a useful object, you know, as a coin meant to be spent. And sometimes you tell the story of it as a collectible object. So sometimes, you know, the same kind of object, like a Libertas Americana medal, you can tell its story several different ways. So you talk about the research that goes into this and certainly being exposed to all the weird stuff, as it were. It seems that in the last few decades, there's just been an explosion of access and publication, published information about many of these areas, whether that's, you know, thanks to the Ford collection, the Newman Numismatic Portal. What are some areas that are sort of underappreciated in this vein and what items still exist and offer opportunities for original research? I would say that all this stuff does. When I wrote the Pope catalogs, I was writing about half cents and large cents and early dollars, and this is all stuff that's been researched to death. And for every lot and every item, I was able to find fresh new information that just maybe required a little bit more digging than usual. So uh, there's really nothing in numismatics that has been researched to exhaustion. Jesus, if large scents haven't been researched to exhaustion, nothing has. You know, I mean, these are things that numismatics best and brightest have been writing about for, you know, literally 150 years at this point. Now, if you want to get into stuff that people really haven't scratched the surface on, a lot of medals of the U.S. mints, you know, they've been cataloged in the Julian catalog so that we know kind of, you know, what they are and, and who engraved them and, and you know, in, in some cases how many were made. But there's very little known about them otherwise. You know, in terms of government resources, those documents exist. You just got to go to the archives and sit there and flip through them and read them and understand them. 
And sometimes, you know, it seems like, uh, you know, stuff that's written in the language of 19th century minting technology uh, seems like a foreign language. But, you know, if you have a decent background in that, have at it. There's, there's lots of stories to be told. And, and I think that's one thing that's important to understand about standard references. You know, the Sheldon book's a little bit different. Some of the other early copper references are a little bit different. But so many of our references that are essentially uh, numerical guides, in other words, they're known by someone's name and then a number that follows it, the catalogs do little more than tell you that the thing in your hand exists. So, and I think that sometimes uh, numismatists get caught up with their reference materials and say, you know, oh, this is, you know, so-and-so number X, Y, Z, and they stop there and say, okay, well, we found it. We, we found it in the guide. We know everything about it. Well, all you've discovered is that the thing you have exists, and someone else has taken note of the fact that it exists. But a lot of these catalogs don't get into the history or the real rarity. There's no censuses of anything like, uh, uh, you know, most of these kinds of things. We have no idea how many counter stamps of a certain type exist or how many specimens of a given Indian peace metal or, you know, you name it, exist. So I think no matter what your interest is, whether it's uh, things related to the French and Indian War or things related to the Civil War or early 20th century U.S. mint medals that have been basically completely ignored for years, there's wide open areas for research if someone actually wants to do the work. And our new Internet resources are, are very helpful in that regard. Certainly not the final word. Lots of times you have to actually go to a library or actually sit with a pile of papers. But the Internet has, has certainly expanded the opportunities. That makes a lot of sense. And I imagine that many researchers are grateful for the sort of dearth of content that they and dearth of sources that they now have to work with. The way you talk about all of this, you, there's an evident passion there. And I wonder, the stories that we tell ourselves and we tell each other about the coins that we collect seem like they would have a great deal of interest to the general public, but it seems like the general public doesn't really know quite as much about coins as a lot of us would hope that they would. How can we make the kinds of stories that you tell and that we tell, how can we make those stories more accessible and engaging for a broader audience outside of the numismatic industry? Well, coin collectors and coin dealers, and of course, coin dealers have always sort of been the tastemakers of numismatics, you know, back to time immemorial. For better or for worse, they generally keep score with money. An 1893 S. Morgan dollar is not inherently more interesting than any other Morgan dollar. I mean, sure, you can make up a story of, you know, the Old West, blah, 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 but, you know, San Francisco in 1893 was as cosmopolitan as any place on Earth. The only thing interesting about an 1893 S. dollar is that since there are relatively fewer of them compared to some other date, they are more valuable. And I think that at our peril, the industry of numismatics and the industry of coin collecting hangs its hat and tries to award the greatest importance to things that are relatively more valuable. And they oftentimes tie that value to this fable of rarity. There's nothing rare about an 1893 S. Morgan dollar. If you told me right now that you wanted 20 of them and gave me an hour on the phone, I'd have 20 of them at your doorstep by tomorrow morning. It just cost um, a lot of money. Yeah, exactly. It's just it's just a question of money. And, you know, it's at some point, uh, you know, the networking to know where these things are. If you told me you wanted to buy, oh, some obscure early American metal or some obscure early American token or some piece of colonial paper money that maybe costs $100, it might take me years to find you one. So I think that in the future, people always sort of, you know, cry and wring their hands and furrow their brows thinking about the death of collecting. People are always going to collect. You know, my 13-year-old kid collects sneakers. People collect video games. 
uh, you know, Pokemon hunting is a form of digital collecting. People love to collect things. It's just, it's inherent in the human nature. But in an era with, oh, increasing economic inequality and, and this sort of thing and difficulty in the economic sphere, this concentration on things are only worth collecting if they're valuable or have the promise to be more valuable, I think that's a risky proposition to expand our hobby. Whereas if we say this thing is desirable to own because it is a talisman that tells a historical story, I think that enables people to get into whatever they want to collect. A 1914 steel set is an object with great history, wonderful history, whether you talk about the recycling effort on the home front or the changeover in American industry to, to military applications. A 1943 steel set that's worth 75 cents in high grade is an item with great history. And I think the longer we promote Oh, I even hate to bring up, you know, grading and slabbing, but the longer we promote, you know, such and such a date is rare because it's a high grade or it's ultra cameo, most people can't tell the difference. Most people don't want to know the difference. But if we actually tell stories and teach history and let people use these objects to connect them with that history, there will always be a demand for them. Whereas there is nothing about a 1958 cent in MS-69 red that makes it any more appealing than any other 1959 cent that's been barely worn or not worn at all. Is its rarity discernible to the average person between a 66 red and a 69 red? Of course it's not. But there are other things about it that make it desirable, and I think we need to spend more time celebrating that. Well, I think you've hit the nail on the head because stories sell coins is a phrase that I like to latch on to. When I'm writing about something, we get stuff from auction houses that are just, you know, this $300,000 item and this and that. And it's like, no, the average coin world reader needs to, you know, being aspirational is good, but talking to them about whether it was, hey, you've heard of Alexander the Great. Here's a, a bronze coin that you can get for $300 or a silver coin for $1,000. It's an object that can convey a larger meaning, and it's vastly accessible, imminently affordable and accessible. Totally. Completely agree. And the way I collect personally, I don't collect things by series. I'm not really much of a completist. But if there is a, an era of time or a historical moment or a historical figure that I, I'd like to know more about or get a deeper connection to, I look for things that maybe are associated with that. For instance, I was reading a book on the history of Dodger Stadium. And, you know, as it turns out, Dodger Stadium was built when a traditional Mexican-American community in Chavez Canyon in Los Angeles was raised and taken over by eminent domain so they could put a, a baseball stadium there. Well, I found a medal that commemorated a series of news articles about the destruction of the housing uh, community in Chavez Canyon. And that medal, that's a $40 medal. The thing's not worth anything at all. But in order to associate with that historical moment – this is probably the only numismatic item on the planet that actually does that, that actually communicates that. And I think that, that all of us are historians at heart. And no matter what the history is that you're interested in, whether it be the history of Martin Van Buren's election or the history of Jack Johnson as a boxer or the history of the founding of the New York Stock Exchange, there's some numismatic item you can find that relates to the history you're interested in. And I think that that's a much more interesting and promising and fulfilling way to collect than to decide walking liberty has or need, I want to get one of each date. And again, 
to take nothing away from that. There are people that enjoy that, but once you finish a set, then what? You can never finish a set of all history. You can't do it. All you can do is find one historical story that makes you curious about another. Absolutely. That brings to mind one of my favorite pieces is a $20 coal token from Colwood, West Virginia, which was mentioned or the central point in the movie Rocket Boys, or October Sky, rather, based on the book Rocket Boys. And this was coal script used in the company store in the town there in Colwood, West Virginia, in the era that was being written about and was featured in the movie with uh, Jake Gyllenhaal. And so instantly this object that anybody can go find with a little hunting then becomes something so much more because of that connection. So I, I love those connections. Anytime you uh, you can latch on to those. You did a wonderful series a few years back with the um, February for Black History Month and just talking about many facets of unexplored or little known today to a wider audience, too much regret and shame, of many of these facets of American history. Yeah, and that all started with basically, in general, knowing the history first and then going and trying to find the numismatic object that matched with that history. You know, it's sort of an inversion of the usual way of collecting things. And, and I found it much more. Over the course of this discussion, we've talked about and you've alluded to trying to engage a, a broader section of people. Many people in the numismatic industry lament the graying, that's, so to speak, that seems to have taken place in recent years. You've been involved in a number of programs of education and outreach towards young numismatists or prospective young numismatists. What trends do you see in terms of hobby demographics? And how could we as an industry attract a somewhat younger and more diverse crowd? So I think those are two different questions. I think this will sound horribly unappreciative coming from someone who had so much encouragement as a young numismatist. I could possibly thank everyone who helped me as a young collector. I think that the weight that we place on attracting young collectors is misplaced. Yes. Young people have so many different competing elements for their time, whether it be school or uh, having their first job or the inevitable discovery of, of dating or you know trying to start a family and get their careers off the ground, etc. Since coin collecting has begun, and I'm talking before the United States was founded, this hobby and sort of hobbies in general of this sort have been the primary bailiwick of people of a certain age, of people who are set with their careers, who have established their families, who have established their homes. You know, this is a hobby that has been uh, primarily populated by people in their 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s for centuries. And I don't think that's a problem at all. Uh, is it great that young people collect? Sure. Do a lot of people who collect in their 40s, 50s, and 60s collect now? because they started as kids and had the bug introduced to them then and collect out of uh, something related to childhood nostalgia? Absolutely. So I think it's important to continue to introduce children, but I think it's more important that children get a good, very broad-based historical education and an encouragement to gather objects and material culture that enriches that historical education than being turned into coin collectors as young people. Because I think 
take a lot of that resource, whether it be you know money or attention. If you try to recruit a thousand kids to collect and you get ten kids who end up collecting throughout their adult years, you're probably doing pretty good. Whereas I think that there are probably more efficient ways to create future collectors. But the other thing you mentioned was diversity. And if you look around a board floor, it is all old white guys. And I think part of that Us three uh, excluded. Uh, I mean we're us three excluded. I mean we're we're white, hey, but I'm, we're not I'm getting there, man. I'm reeling myself, you know. Um, and I think that part of that is because of a typical way of teaching history that is hagiographic. It is is worshipful of people like presidents and generals and CEOs and things like that. Whereas the way that I've tried to collect and in many ways I've tried to teach is to try to highlight a more history of the common man and the common woman. People, you know, you mentioned coal tokens. The collection of tokens tell stories of small business people and small towns and people without great financial means and workers who engaged in efforts to improve their own well-being and the well-being of their communities and their families. And I think when our history teaches us that the most important Americans are George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and, you know, Henry Ford and Dwight Eisenhower. Nothing wrong with that. Those are all very important Americans. But it misses something. You know, most of us aren't going to be president. Most of us aren't going to be a general or a CEO. Most of us are never going to meet one or know one. But we all know common Americans who engage in commerce, who build their families, who are active in their communities. Uh, and I think that there is a way to collect that celebrates those kind of people and contributions that gets missed in the typical way history is taught and the typical way that numismatics is taught. And I would love to see a different approach to that, which I think will bring in more women, a more diverse crowd, whether it be racially or geographically or anything else, and not just people who are generally Caucasian men of me. So I think that there's great work we can do on that by telling different stories all the time. Is there room then, or one of the ways we do that, something like what has been done at Colonial Williamsburg? I believe you have a relationship with them and have worked there. Maybe it was Monticello. What's the best venue to do that? I mean, is it going to require partnering with uh, national education associations? I mean, what, you know, state legislatures who make some of this curricula? I mean, what are we missing? How How do we do that? Well, I mean, I think a lot of it comes down to, you know, education just, you know, and, and that's nothing that, you know, I don't think our industry, which is small potatoes, can get into, you know, changing the way textbooks are written. But a lot of it comes down to the way textbooks are written. You know, you come out of your uh, sixth grade social studies class or your AP history class, you know, and you're going to remember the names of, of senators and presidents and CEOs and not much else because of the way history is taught. Uh, I would love to see history taught a different way, but I'm not sure that that's a goal that the, the coin community can set about changing either politically or, you know, through its power. But what we can do is encourage people to, to write and research and take pride in these other things, uh, the sort of, you know, collectibles and the sort of stories I'm talking about, and realize that even though these pieces are maybe obscure or maybe don't have a lot of monetary value, that they still have great value as teaching articles and teaching instruments. Um, and that's difficult because you kind of have to go your own way on this. I mean, there's no way to write the, you know, United States guidebook of underappreciated numismatic items. You kind of have to be an individual. And let's be honest, most people, A, they have lives. This is a hobby. They're not trying to do hard research work all day. And B, most people are followers, you know. They collect Morgan dollars because Morgan dollars are the thing to collect. So it requires probably a special kind of individual 
to make a collectible or to make a collection that's that individual. So in that same vein of individuals trying to manifest their interest and their research interests through collecting, what advice would you give to aspiring numismatists and researchers who are looking to investigate any number of different topics that fall under the umbrella of numismatics? I guess I would suggest a history-first kind of perspective, which is to say, you know, reading on the internet or, you know, subscribing to Coin World isn't going to be enough. You know, I've learned more about the kind of history I appreciate from reading history books and biographies and historical journals and non-numismatic things that have broadened my historical appreciation than any of the 10,000 coin books I own. And there's nothing wrong with owning coin books. They're great. But, you know, learning the striking characteristics of a particular data Franklin half isn't doing anything for my historical appreciation. So I think that you kind of have to come to it, you know, from history and art and geography and economics first. But I would say that the work you put in as a collector in learning this history uh, and learning what's out there and being, and being willing to you know, go beyond what you might see at your typical local coin show or what you might see at your local, you know, coin dealer shop or what's in a typical auction even. I think that willingness to delve into things that maybe are a little scary and unfamiliar, that willingness to make mistakes, or even that willingness to purchase something that might not go up in value, I think that adds so much enrichment to our lives as collectors if you're willing to do it, if you're willing to go there. And obviously, once you're spending a lot of money, you want to know that someone else is going to appreciate it the same as you do. And so that's sort of the attraction to, you know, mainstream red book numismatics. But I, I think that there is a certain element of, you know, if you build it, they will come. And that collectors who know this material become the best evangelists for the material that they love. We've seen that, whether that's uh, the um, the Society of Metalists that David Alexander cataloged and the Hall of Fame of Great Americans are been cataloged, you know, once there's a reference out there and there's dissemination of this information, uh, then people have sort of a, they feel comfortable approaching that because there's a body of knowledge that is accessible and can be used as a guide. It seems that scholarship in the end is sort of going to be a key part of moving the hobby forward. I 100% agree. There's just so much stuff out there that we need to create the people who appreciate all of these various kinds of things. Uh, and I think that just by their nature, the kinds of people that are going to be sitting around filling in, you know, BF collections of barber quarters, you know, it's a hobby that, that came when, uh, you know, started in the Depression when people are saving coins from change and then really got popular in the 60s with silver was disappearing from change and people were trying to line up as many dates as they can. The cultural and historical conditions that created that kind of collecting don't exist anymore. So we almost need to create a new paradigm to better align with today's culture and not the culture of the 1930s or 1960s. And do you perceive as part of the culture of the 1930s or the 1960s that you allude to, do you perceive gatekeeping as being an issue that the numismatic industry contends with? It seems to me that for a lot of people, I can only speak from my own friends giving me weird looks when I go out and spend $100 on a, you know, on a token from from long ago or something. They look at me like I'm crazy if you spend, you know, more than face value on something, right? Is there a way in which the sort of jargon-laden and often inaccessible titles of, of works or the very specific vocabulary and patterns of thought that exist in the hobby might be alienating to people? And is there a way that we can make that more accessible? Every culture 
or every specialty group, numismatic or not, has its own language. You know, if you go to a, a group of people that like old cars, they're going to have their own language. If you go to a group of people who like to do cross-country skiing, they're going to have their own language. But the difference between those kinds of groups and coin collecting is that they're social. You know, if you have an old car, you generally don't just sit home and look at it and, you know, polish its fender with a with an old cloth diaper and then go back in the house. You're generally, <laughs> driving it somewhere, you're taking it to a car show, you're meeting with other people, you're talking to mechanics, this sort of thing. And I think that especially in the age of the Internet, coin collecting has adopted this very sort of solitary kind of culture that damages it. I came up in the era of the coin club, and I learned about all of these things and learned about the slang and the books and how to collect and what to do and what not to do, not from reading on the Internet or looking at nest boards or, or whatever. I learned it from people. I learned it from you know, leaving the house on a Monday night after my homework was done and going with my mom to the basement of the local bank building and sitting around with 30 or 40 people that range from the most casual collectors possible to world-renowned numismatists who were there to teach and share their enthusiasm and share their passion. We have lost that. And I think that we've done it at our own peril. And I think that it has uh, diminished our ability to see the coin collecting community as a community. So I think that, that the gatekeeping now has created a bunch of little individual lone wolves who go on eBay or go on the Internet or you know go on the message boards and, and, and learn what they can from people that they can't tell if they're experts or not and, and collecting items that they don't know if they're real or as described or not. And, and there's a lack of mentorship. And I don't know how to bring that back because I think people have just sort of crawled back into their shells as individuals and, you know, uh, doing more on social media than actual real life at this point. But without that mentorship, it's tough to pass the torch of the language and of the community uh, and of the other sort of, you know, ramifications or, or, or trappings of this coin collecting culture that's been passed down gener generation to generation for 150 years in this country. So I wish I could come back somehow. I don't know how to do it, but I wish it could. I think we all share that sentiment and, you know, with any luck, your work and some of the work that we do can maybe try to re-energize that, uh, reinvigorate that culture a little bit. But we want to thank you so much, uh, John, for, for coming on and, and taking the time to talk to us today. I know that this was a fascinating and wide-ranging conversation that I imagine uh, our listeners are going to find interesting, especially because you've articulated a perspective that I think is maybe not completely unique in the hobby, but is at least not maybe as widely expressed. So we certainly thank you for taking the time. Happy to do it. Happy to do it anytime. So thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm just delighted. Every time talking to you, I experience the passion. And a lot of the things that you've enunciated today are, are things that sort of have weighed on me as important. And I'm glad to have a voice like yours saying that. And um, again, just can't thank you enough. So thank you. We really hope that you enjoyed our interview with John Kralovich. We had a great time talking to him, and we hope that some of his perspectives and experiences might inform some of your research interests in the future. You know, there's, as has he alluded to in the interview and as we talked about with him, there are a lot of different opportunities for research and new learning uh, in the numismatic industry. So, And sharing the hobby. Yep, and sharing the hobby and, and being uh, good stewards of the hobby that we all share. So and we, we hope you enjoyed it. Speaking of sharing the hobby, please share a link to our podcast with anyone who you may think likes it and subscribe, of course. That's all we're going to say about that for this week. Until next time, happy collecting. 
Thank you for listening to the Coin World Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next week. Send us your questions and feedback on Facebook at facebook.com slash coinworld or on Twitter at coinworld. Be the first to know about our next episode by signing up for our newsletter. Go to coinworld.com and click on free newsletter to sign up today. This episode of the Coin World Podcast was brought to you by the Coin World Premier Slab Coin Holders, available at Amos Advantage. These holders seal tightly to ensure the look and feel of a slab without the expense. With the versatile Premier Coin Holders, you can mix and match your slabbed and unslabbed coins. These are sold in packages of three and are available in 40 different sizes. So head over to AmosAdvantage.com to check out the Coin World Premier Slab Coin Holders and all of the other coin collecting accessories available there. That's AmosAdvantage.com.